If you've been around Lake Effect for a while, you'll know part of my story. And part of my story is I was never a very good student. A school was always a hard thing for me, even from the time of elementary. I was this kid that really didn't do too well. I was a kid that was pulled out for the little one-on-one reading sessions or the math or any kind of tutoring to catch me up. And when you're really little, that's kind of fun. You get a little one-on-one attention. But as you grow a little older, you realize that's not such a good thing, being pulled out of classes. But fortunately, I kept going in school and kept making it from grade to grade. Um, Fortunately, you know, God has given me a personality type that some personality models would call it the achiever. But sometimes I will just stick in there. I'll just do whatever it takes just because I want to achieve. Some of the weakness of that personality is what I'm really trying to avoid is that feeling of being worthless. So I'll do anything possible to achieve so nobody think, will think less of me. So that's kind of how I got through school, just that personality to achieve. And so when it came time to go to college, it, you know, really college probably wasn't the best choice or best career path for me. But I think that's the path that God had for me. So I actually got into Calvin College, which was quite a, quite something that, something good that happened, because that's a pretty good college, and it's a hard college to get into, but I got into Calvin because I had to go through this academic support program. Anyway, that was my, my entrance into Calvin was conditional on, I took some of these support classes to kind of get me set up to go to college. So I was excited to be in college, and I think I was a little naive thinking that simply because I'm going to college, I'm going to have a good experience. I never really, nothing changed between high school and college except my expectation. So I got into college and I kind of had a rude awakening. So I think, I went to Calvin just kind of excited, optimistic, this is going to be good. My very first class was Psychology 101. And I remember taking that class. I literally remember sitting in that classroom where it was in the basement of the library at Calvin. And I thought, this, is, this might be my niche. This might be my, my path, the psychology class. I love the class. The very first lecture, I remember, it was on racism and it was on stereotypes. And I thought, well, this, this is good. I'm going to do really well in college. And I studied hard in that class. And the first test came and I thought, man, this is good. I got my test back and I got a D. And I was like, you've got to be kidding me. I was devastated. I remember I walked out of class and I just walked Calvin's campuses. There's about a mile or two loop around the campus. And I just walked that for an hour thinking, you've got to be kidding me. I was so excited, so optimistic. This was going to be a new start, a new beginning. And, and I got a D. And I put time and effort and energy into the class. And there I am. Stuck with a D. And I think, I think you guys, some of you know what that's like. You, you're, you're optimistic and suddenly you, you just have this deep feeling of inadequacy. Something that you thought you were going to be good at. Instead what you realize, I'm not good at that. And you feel inadequate. And that, that just opens the door to that feeling of hopelessness. And, and I think a lot of us, that, that opens that door to that feeling of just being unuseful. And you're not going to have any productivity and I think we worry about that in our lives. It's like we all want to be useful. We all want to contribute. We always all want to have a productive life. And there I'm sitting there with my D, thinking, what is my next step? What am I going to do? See, maybe for some of you, you've never felt inadequate in school. Maybe you're good at school. But maybe you felt inadequate in other areas of your life. Maybe in a relationship. Maybe in a marriage. Maybe as a job or as an employer. There's some area of your life that maybe you felt inadequate or maybe you didn't feel like you're very useful. Or maybe you didn't feel like you really participated. And kind of when we have those feelings, you feel like there's something really lacking in me. That there's something missing in me. There's something wrong with me. I'm just, I'm missing some element to make me more of a whole person. 
And I think that feeling of inadequacy, that feeling of you don't measure up, I think that is the exact feeling that those first disciples had when Jesus called to them and said, follow me. I think some of the very first people that Jesus called, like Simon and his brother Andrew in Mark verse 1, I think they all had a deep feeling of that they were inadequate or that they weren't good enough. And when Jesus called to them and said, follow me, I think their first reaction is, I don't know why you're picking me. Because I'm probably not good enough. I don't think I'm worth, worthy to be your disciple. I don't think I'm worthy for you to actually be my mentor. I kind of wonder if when Jesus called to Simon, he called to Andrew and said, hey, follow me. I kind of wonder if their first reaction was they looked around like, you have to be talking to somebody else. Because you're not, you can't. Because if you really know me, if you know anything about me, if you know my past, you would never call me. Because I don't fit the criteria to be your disciple. Now, before I explain a little bit more, I think I, I want to read the passage. I'm going to jump around in the book of Mark, Mark 1, 2, and 3, and you can follow along in your notes. I'm going to read a few different scriptures about when Jesus called his disciples. We first see in Mark 1, verse 16, it said, On the day as Jesus was walking around the shore of the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon, and Simon's the one whose name later gets changed to Peter. He saw Simon and his brother Andrew throwing a net into the water, for they fished for a living. Jesus called out to them, Come, follow me, and I will show you how to fish for people. And they left their nets at once and followed him. Then we jump to, and then verse 19, it says, A little farther up the shore, Jesus saw Zebedee's sons, James and John, in a boat repairing their nets. He called them at once, and they also followed him, leaving their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men. And if you jump to Mark 2, verse 13, it says, When Jesus went out to the lakeshore again and taught the crowds that were coming to him, as he, walked, as he walked along, he saw Levi's son, Adelphia, sitting on the tax, at his tax collector's booth. Follow me and be my disciple, Jesus said to him. So Levi got up and followed him. And then in Mark 3, verse 13, it says, Afterwards, Jesus went up on a mountain and called out to the ones he wanted to go with him. And they came to him. Then he appointed 12 of them and called them his apostles. They were to accompany him. And he would send them out to preach, giving them authority to cast out demons. And then in Mark 8, verse 34, it says, Then calling the crowd to join his disciples, he said, If any of you want to be my followers, you must give up your own way, take up your cross, and follow me. If you try to hang on to your own life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake and for the sake of the good news, you will save it. And what, you would, and what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? See, when you read these passages in Mark, when you read the account of Jesus calling his first disciples, you notice two distinct things. First, Jesus was on the lakeshore a lot. He walked around the Sea of Galilee. That's primary his area of ministry. And the second thing you notice is when he wanted called people, he's called people and said, follow me. He invited them to be his disciple or to be an apprentice. He didn't call them to just have a little bit of a commitment to him. He called for a deep commitment. And I think the disciples were very shocked, especially Andrew and, and, and Simon, when Jesus called them, because like I said earlier, they didn't feel qualified. They didn't feel qualified to be a disciple. And I think sometimes in our American culture of what it means to follow Jesus is completely different from what it meant to follow Jesus back in the first century. 
I think sometimes we miss the commitment that Jesus was asking the early disciples. See, when we talk about Jesus in our, in, in today, I think sometimes we miss the significance of what Jesus was calling his disciples to. I think we look at Jesus kind of, and we're, we're un, we know a lot about Jesus, about his divine part of him. We know a lot of Jesus as the son of God. We know about his holiness and his righteousness. We know a lot about Jesus, about, you know, he came to die on the cross for our sins. But I think sometimes we struggle with understanding Jesus, the, the human man that came to earth. I think we have a hard time under, trying to figure out what was Jesus like as just a regular human being? I think we have a lot of misunderstanding of that area, and sometimes we do because the Bible doesn't give us that details. But I think sometimes we look at Jesus just like he was just kind of maybe sort of like a hippie dude, just kind of a relaxed guy, just, just kind of wearing his sandals and just kind of floating in and out of situations. And we're, we're, we're kind of unsure about what he was like as a regular man. But the Bible wants us to understand one thing about Jesus as a human, and that is that he was a rabbi. And a rabbi is, is, is a word for um, the Jewish, the Hebrew word for teacher. He wasn't just a regular teacher. He was a teacher of the scriptures. What part of the Bible that they had, some of the, the, what they referred to as the Torah, and he would have some of the books of the prophet. Jesus would have those. And as a rabbi, he would go around from synagogue to synagogue teaching people about what these scriptures actually meant. And to be a rabbi in that day was a, actually a very high honor. Not everybody got to be a rabbi. You had to be very skilled. You had to know the Bible very well. You needed to be able to explain it well. You need to be able to articulate it well. So to be a rabbi is a very high position of honor. But not only would the rabbi just teach, but he would also mentor other young men. And so be following a rabbi would be maybe five or six or ten or twelve different people that would be called his disciples that would follow after the rabbi to learn as much as possible from the rabbi. And to be a rabbi, that's not something that you started as an adult and thought, well, maybe I'll be a rabbi. That's something that you would start to consider as early as five years old. See, in the school system for the Hebrews, for the Hebrew children, school would start at five years old. And it's kind of a similar structure to what we have. There's kind of like an elementary and kind of a middle school and then a high school. So all the little boys and girls would start school at five or six, and they would learn the scriptures. They would learn to memorize the Torah and memorize some books of the other books of the Old Testament. And then after you finish that early primary education, you'd go on to a middle school. And in that time of life, they would, you would start learning the explanation of scriptures. You'd start knowing what do the scriptures really mean and how to apply them to your life. And then at about age 13 or so, you were done with school. The girls would just stay home and actually they would start getting married as early as 13 and 14, starting to have families, and the boys would start to learn a trade so that they could work for a living. But if you're a really smart young man and you did really well in the elementary and the middle school and you're 13 and you show a lot of potential, they'll actually ask you to continue your education. And you're going to go and you're just going to continue to learn the scripture and learn the meaning of them and continue to memorize. And when you finish that at about maybe 17 or 18 years old, that's not the end of your education. Your goal is to become a rabbi. And in order to become a rabbi, you have to have another rabbi offer or agree to disciple you or mentor you. There's a whole structure that had to happen in order for you to become a rabbi. You had to be very smart in school, very diligent in school, and you had to show a lot of aptitude and ability to explain scripture. And to find, to, so to graduate from like the high school, you had to show a lot of competency. So somebody, another rabbi would say, yeah, would you follow me? I will agree to mentor you because I see a lot of potential. 
So when Jesus finds Simon and he finds Andrew and some of the other disciples, well, we know that they're young men and they were actually practicing a trade, which would be a good indication that they didn't make it any further than maybe the middle school area because nobody was mentoring them and nobody was being a rabbi to lead them. So that's why I say I think some of these young men, when Jesus called them, thought, I'm not qualified. I'm not smart enough. I'm not good enough. I didn't do well enough in school, and nobody else picked me, and so, so why are you picking me? And, Je- and these young men, they would know who Jesus is. It's not like it was just some random cold call that, these, that, that Peter and, and Andrew are just there on their boat, and this man walks by and says, follow me, and they say, sure. They actually probably knew who Jesus was. They probably heard some of the talk about Jesus because Jesus is going from synagogue to synagogue teaching, and not only is he a good teacher, but he's doing miracles. So that would grab a lot of attention, and Jesus is known, too, for casting out demons and the sick getting well. So they're hearing this talk about Jesus, so that even elevates Jesus to this higher position, and Jesus is looking at these average, ordinary men and saying, follow me. So on one hand, that would be a dream for these guys, that Jesus is saying, follow me. I mean, that's a dream come true. But on the other hand, that's a big commitment. Jesus wasn't just asking them, hey, hey, why don't you just come to a Bible study on maybe every other Tuesday night and occasionally on Saturday if it fits your schedule. No, Jesus is saying to these men, I want your entire lives to revolve around following me. I want everything you do from the time you wake up to the time your bed hits the pillow to be all about centering your life around me. Because when you're a rabbi and you're going to disciple these young men, the, the goal was that these young men would change and transform and they would become just like the rabbi. And that was the rabbi's goal, that these young apprentices would become like the rabbi and then they would start mentoring people just like the rabbi did. So if you are going to be called to follow Jesus, there's three things that you're really going to have to do. You're going to have to devote as much time as possible to be with your rabbi. Every minute you have available, you need to be with that rabbi because your goal is to become just like your rabbi. And if you want to become like your rabbi, well, then you better spend time with him so you can start becoming like him. And then you're going to start to do what your rabbi did. That was the goal is that you become like your rabbi and you do just what your rabbi does. And see, that's the whole goal. And the the first disciples of Jesus, they knew exactly what Jesus said when he said, follow me. They knew he was asking for a commitment. They knew it wasn't just this part-time thing that you do. See, and I think sometime in our American culture, we kind of forget the commitment that Jesus is asking when he says to follow me. I think sometimes we lose that in our culture that we think Christianity is a little bit more of a hobby. Or maybe when I have time for it. Or maybe when it's convenient for me. But in that first century, that meant you dropped your nets. That you dropped that career you were doing and you said, I have one purpose. And that is to follow this man who said, follow me so I can become just like him. I want to start this new series as we begin this new year. And I'm calling this series of What Story Are You Telling? When I was a kid, I remember growing up in church, and maybe some of you grew up in a church that they sang hymns, and one of the hymns that we would sing was, we have a story to tell to the nations. 
And I remember sitting in church listening to that. And that is just a beautiful song. So that, that's your homework for all of you. You got to Google that song and you got to listen to some old church choir sing it. We have a story to tell to the nation. It's four verses. Someday we'll have a choir and we're going to sing that song. It, it, it's, but you have to have some really old people sing it too because it just, it works better that way because that I can hear my grandma singing. But it's a beautiful song and the first verse says, we have a story to tell to the nations that shall turn their hearts to the right. A story of truth and mercy. A story of peace and light. A story of peace and light. And then the second verse is, we have a song to be sung to the nations. And then the third verse, we have a message to give to the nations. And the fourth verse is, we have a Savior to show to the nations. See, that's what we're called to do. We have a story to tell. We have a message. We have a gospel to demonstrate to the world. That is what Jesus is calling us to do as his disciples. And I think sometimes we forget how much he's called us to tell that story. And so the question that I want to ask you is what story are you telling? Are you telling a story? Are you sharing the message? And another question is, what story have you heard? What story have you heard from the Bible? As well as what story are you telling yourself? I want to talk in this series, in this month of January, I want to talk about the vision for Lake Effect Church. What we feel called to do as a people and as a church. And, you know, we talk about our purpose statement as Lake Effect Church is to be a people that are devoted to Christ. That we're devoted to Jesus and his message to the world. And before we can talk about vision, what our purpose is and what we want to do, we have to remind ourselves of what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. We can't go any further about talking about missions or outreach or anything until we remind ourselves what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus. And so we want to start this year just reminding ourselves what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus. See, our goal is to be fully devoted to Christ, to be fully devoted to his message of the world. And that is our goal, but we all know we have obstacles. There are things that are trying to interfere with us every single day. There's so much evidence that shows that what is forming us, what is molding us, or what's shaping us, or what's influencing us is happening, and we're all totally unaware of it. As well as there's evidence that shows that our behavior and the decisions that we make and the actions that we make, we're doing these things without even being aware of that as well. There's so many things that influence us and that we do that just unconsciously happen in our lives. You know that feeling when you're going along and you're like, How, why, why did I do that? You're like, why did I do that? Or why did I say that? Or why did I think that? We have things that are influencing us and causing our behavior so often that we're totally unaware of. There was a study done at Duke University, I forgot what year, many years ago, that showed that 40% of the actions that we do on a daily basis are just the results of habits and not even choices. We just automatically do things. One author, William James, said it this way. He said all of our life can be defined as just a mass of habits, that we just collect a lot of habits and that we just do things without even thinking about them. There's a great book called The Power of Habits, and the author says, when a habit is formed, the brain stops fully participating in decision-making. The patterns we have unfold automatically. 
There's just things that we do and we say or we believe or influence us that we really are not even totally aware of. And that's why I think we look forward to times like New Year's, at times when we turn the calendar because it's an opportunity for us to reflect back and say, why do I do certain things? Why do I, why do I believe certain things and what influences me? And I think around this time of year, it's like there's this common grace for everybody in the world to kind of receive this, this maybe this, this, this idea of a fresh start or a new beginning. And I think we all agree that New Year's resolutions don't work too well. They're not going to last longer than a day or two. But it's really powerful is when you're a follower of Christ in the beginning of the year, the end of the year, you start feeling that nudge from the Holy Spirit. I want you to start changing things in your life. And you feel this draw of God, like we need to respond differently or act different or believe different. Or we need to start new habits or form new habits. And I think that's what a lot of us are feeling right now. We're feeling kind of that nudge from God saying, let's be a little bit different this year. Let's be a little bit more intentional. And I think we agree that the best way to see change is that you do have a goal but you also have a strategy to get to that goal. You can't be like me going in high school saying, well, I'm going to go to college and I'm going to be smart then. That's not going to work. You have to have a strategic path to get there, strategic steps. So I want to close my message today talking about the Apostle Peter, the man that was Simon in the book of Mark and how he's, and I want to talk about how he's trained and now he's Peter. And he's writing a letter to the church in 2 Peter. And I want to just end my message on what is Peter's advice. We're going to read 2 Peter. I'm going, to, I'm going to start at the end of 2 Peter 1 to kind of show you a little bit of Peter's motivation. In 2 Peter 1, verse 12 through 15, Peter says this. He says, So I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are fully established in the truth you now have. I think it is right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body, because I know that I will soon put it aside as our Lord Jesus Christ has made it clear to me and I will make every effort to see that my de- and I will make every effort to see that after my departure you will always be able to remember these things see this is a powerful chapter in the Bible Peter's basically saying I'm going to die really soon I know my time is about up and I'm going to spend the rest of my time reminding you of things that you already know I'm not going to start teaching you anything new. In fact, I'm going to teach you the essentials of what I think is the essentials for you to remember. And I think that's kind of my message this morning. That some of you are like, yeah, I kind of know what you're talking about. But it's kind of like Peter. I want to go back and I want to remind you of something that is very important. Peter says it right to him. He says, look, you already know these things and you're already doing them. But I'm going to remind you anyway. And I think that's the rest of my message today. I'm just reminding you all of things that you already know. But Peter's saying, I want them on the, I want you to know them very, very well. So what does Peter want you to know? Let's read 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. This letter is from Simon Peter, a slave and apostle of Jesus Christ. I'm writing to you who share the same precious faith we have. This faith was given to you because of the justice and fairness of Jesus Christ, our God and Savior. May God give you more and more grace and peace as you grow in your knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. By his divine power, God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. We have received all of this by coming to know him, the one who called us to himself by means of his marvelous glory and excellence. 
And because of his glory and excellence, he has given us great and precious promises. These are the promises that enable you to share his divine nature and escape the world's corruption caused by human desires. In view of all this, make every effort to respond to God's promises. Supplement your faith with a generous provision of moral excellence, and moral excellence with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with patient endurance, and patient endurance with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love for everyone. The more you grow like this, the more productive and useful you will be in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But those who fail to develop in this way are short-sighted or blind forgetting that they have been cleansed from their old sins. So, dear brothers and sisters, work hard to prove that you are really are among those God has called and chosen. Do these things, and you will never fall away. Then God will give you a grand entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So what does this man want you to know? What is this man who knows that he's going to be dying soon? What does he want the people to remember that are receiving this letter? I'm going to divide it into four things that I think he wants you to know. And the first thing that he wants you to know is his story. Peter wants you to know a little bit about him. I love the first verse when Peter says, this is Simon Peter. That's a powerful verse. I think you might say, well, what's so significant about that? That's his name. See, if you look at 1 Peter 1, Peter writes a letter and he says, this is Peter. And now he's starting this other chapter saying, this is Simon Peter. What's he doing? See, Peter wants you to remember who he was before he knew Jesus. He wants you to remember that he was Simon. That he was the man that Jesus called to when he was in a boat in the book of Mark. See, sometimes you expect when a person is at the maturity of Peter and he's at this point of his life that maybe you'd introduce Peter by telling all his accolades, all the things he was good at. You know, you've been to conferences where the speaker gets up and they talk about all their educational achievements and how, and how, uh, how published they are and all the articles that they've written. You kind of expect that. Maybe we're going to do that about Peter in this chapter, talk about how great he is and how wonderful his accomplishments are. But Peter starts out by saying, I want to remind you, I was Simon. I was the guy that was kind of messed up. See, the name Simon means to be unstable. And Jesus gave him a new name. Peter meant solid and a rock. The first thing that Peter wants to do is remind his audience of who he was before. See, Peter's not going to be ashamed of who he was before. Instead, he's going to put the spotlight on it. He wants people to remember where he was before. He wants people to remember the things that he did. See, Peter's kind of known for the guy that denied Jesus three times. He's kind of known as the disciple who said a lot of silly things. He's the kind of disciple who put his foot in his mouth a lot. Peter's not going to deny that at the end. He's saying, I want you to know who I was. Because Peter's saying, my credibility today is not because I'm so smart or so accomplished or memorize so much scripture. The reason you all need to listen to me is because Jesus transformed my life. 
That's what he wants the reader to know. That's why Peter has credibility to get up and say these things, because Jesus changes life. See, you'll notice in the, in the Gospels, if you read through it, his name started as Simon, then Jesus changed it to Peter. But you see that sometimes Jesus would refer to Peter as Simon, and sometimes he would refer to him as Peter. See, any time that Jesus referred to Peter as Simon, he was referring to Peter before he knew Jesus. He was referring to Peter before he encountered Jesus, and Jesus changed his life. So you might remember reading in the Bible, it'll talk about, uh, it'll talk about um, and Jesus said, we're going to go to Simon's house. He was referring to what, the, where he lived before he knew Jesus. But also if Jesus would call Peter Simon, it was used the indication that Peter was warning Peter, saying, hey, you're acting like your old self again. Stop doing that, Peter. Stop doing that, Peter. So he'd call him Simon. Kind of a little code word for, uh, you're not behaving properly. But Jesus would also call Peter Simon when Peter was about to get in trouble. You might remember when Jesus warned Peter that he's going to deny Jesus three times, he called him Simon. He said, Simon. He'd say you'd refer to him, that old nature that you have, that person that, 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 was, that, that was before you met Jesus, he's warning him that's going to act up again. And see, then when, then when Jesus would call Peter, Peter, it was like his way of affirming Peter, kind of applauding him like, yeah, you're doing it. You're doing a good job. It's Jesus' way of affirming him by using his new name. So when Peter gets up before, when he's writing this letter to everybody, he wants you to know who I was before I met Jesus. And that's the credibility I have. And that's why you need to read this letter. And that's why you need to do what I'm going to tell you to do in the next couple of sentences or verses. Because I know what it's like to have your life changed by Jesus. I went from an unstable man to a man that's not stable. That's rock solid because I know Jesus. So listen to me. Because this is how you change your life. And the first thing that Peter wants you to know after his name is he wants you to know that you have every single thing that you need. That if you are a follower of Jesus, you have every single thing that you need and you don't lack anything. See, that's what the enemy does to us over and over again. When you have that feeling of inadequacy, you think, what's missing from my life? What's wrong with me? I must be, I'm not a whole person. Something is missing. I need something. And Peter's saying, no, you have every single thing you need if you have faith in Jesus Christ. So stop feeling inadequate. You have what you need. And because you have faith, you have the foundation that is necessary to build everything on top of that. Peter's saying you're the promises of God. You have the equipment. You have the resources you need to build upon that. But he's also telling people the third point is you're going to have to put a little effort into this. You're going to have to do something. You can't sit around saying, well, maybe when I feel more motivated, when I'm a little bit more inspired, or maybe you got to stop saying, well, maybe after I feel equipped and prepared, then I'll do it. No, Peter's saying you are all prepared. You are all equipped. You have the faith. You have every single thing that you need. So now you've got to put a little effort into it. 
But he's also reminding the, the reader that everything that you have in your life is because Jesus already did for it, so your effort is actually just responding to what God has done for you. And so he's encourages people, you're going to have to do something. And so he's telling people, okay, this is what you're going to do. In verse 5 through 7, he starts listing out characteristics or virtues of a follower of Jesus. He's laying out seven things, seven virtues that he wants you to realize. And the last one is he wants you to love. He wants you to have a love for all people. And you kind of look at that scripture and you say, well, that, that's kind of a hard thing to do. How am I going to have so much love? How am I going to do that? Well, then Peter's going to tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you six steps to be able to get to that place where you can love a person the way I want you to love a person. See, for Peter, the the love is the highest virtue of a follower of Jesus. And it's also a reflection of how much do you love God? I could say to all of you, I love God a lot, and you say, well, but the way you treat other people is not a reflection of the love of God. So what Peter is saying is the way you can monitor the, 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 the litmus test to know how much you love other people's or how much you love God is how you treat other people. So Peter is encouraging people, I want you to love people. And this is how you're going to get started. He gives, them a, he gives them a ladder. He says it's going to start with some moral excellence. Moral excellence is kind of a big word. I like one, what one commentary said. It said moral excellence, that's just a fancy word that means start by making some right choices. Start by making some simple little right choices that need to be made. And he says your moral excellence is going to lead to knowledge. And what he's talking about knowledge here, he's talking about a relationship with Jesus. It's not so much of a head knowledge as much as an experience that you're going to have with Jesus because you get to know him. And the way you get to know him is through the word of God. See, the rabbis in the first century, they had a little saying. They would say prayer is very important because that's you talking to God. But they said what's more important is reading your Bible. That's because because that's when God talks to you. And that's what Peter's encouraging. Read your Bible. Let Jesus talk to you. Find a Bible reading plan like Ron talked about and commit yourself to spending that time a day. Spend time with Jesus like like Susie talked about the the, the scriptural journaling plan that when you slow down and you just kind of marinate on one scripture, you're going to do, you need to do that. You need to get knowledge. And it's not so much that you can say, I memorize the Bible, but knowledge by you experience the Bible because Jesus starts speaking to you through his word. That's what Peter's encouraging here. Start making some right decisions. And the first decision, why don't you start reading your Bible a little bit? Because as you start reading your Bible, you start to rely on Jesus more and more and more. And when that happens, you start seeing some of these habits you have, some of these behaviors you have, stop, they begin to lose their influence that they have over your life. And that's the third thing that Peter brings up. He says, I want you to have some self-control. Because sometimes you're acting like these studies that I talked about earlier, when you're just acting and behaving without even thinking, you're just, you're just, you're just a, one of the authors said, you're just a mass of habits. And Peter says we need to start diffusing those habits. So start really reading the word of God. Start letting that influence your life so your decisions are influenced by God and not just influenced by your habits. And Peter says as you develop that self-control in your life and you start to see your life change, and then what you're going to do is then you're going to start experiencing endurance. And this is that point you're going to want to give up because it gets hard and it gets long. And you just want to give up and throw on your towel. And Peter's like, no, don't do that. Hang in there. 
because you're developing muscle. Hang in there. Don't give up. See, endurance creates this greater dependency on God. When life gets harder, it makes us more dependent on God. But that's that point, too, that you just want to quit and give up. And Peter said, don't do that. You have everything you need. You have everything you need to hold on. And then Peter says that endurance that you have, that perseverance, that leads to godliness. That leads to this greater and greater devotion that you have for Jesus. This greater reverence that you have for God and it changes your attitudes towards God. And it starts changing the attitude that you have for other people. Peter's like, let God develop that through your endurance and perseverance. And then he says what that's going to lead to is lead to kindness. It's going to lead to compassion for other people. He said that's going to lead, then you're going to start treating other people like they're part of your family. And you're going to show them a lot of grace. And you're going to show them a lot of forgiveness. You're going to show them a lot of patience like you do with people in your family. And you're okay with people if they have a little bit of a difference from you or they like one thing one way and you like it the other. And then Peter says that all leads to love. And that's the goal that Peter has for these readers. Well, the last things that Peter's saying to this church, focus on loving other people. Focus on putting other people's needs before yours because you know what? You have everything you need. So why are you worried about your needs? Start taking care of other people's needs. You have all that you need. Build on what God has given to you. That's Peter's message. See, there's such a tendency when we feel like we don't have what we need, you do what I did and you just start walking in circles. Thinking, oh no, what am I missing? What am I lacking? What's wrong with me? And Peter says, no, climb a ladder. Climb a ladder and start by making some good decisions, some good choices. And keep moving up on the ladder. Move deeper into your relationship with God so you get to that point that you're loving other people. And that's a reflection of your love for God. That's what Peter wants us to do in this new year. Let's focus on other loving other people. That's hard to do after last year. Seems like there's been a lot of enemy relationships that have been formed last year. A lot of disagreements that have happened. And you all wonder, what am I going to do? What am I going to do after a year like last year? Well, let's start with some moral excellence. Just start making some new decisions. Start making some new choices. Let's start getting out that Bible reading plan. Let's get out that scriptural journaling and say, I, I don't know what to do. But I know if I read the Bible, it's going to influence me. I think that's what God wants us to do this year. Just read the Bible. Let it influence you. We're so fortunate. Ron brought up these apps that we have, but I, I also use an app that it reads the Bible to me. Sometimes that's a nice way too. I'll, I'll just sit there with my Bible and I, I just follow along. I get, there's so many ways to read your Bible nowadays. It's on our phone. I think God's just saying, read your Bible. Let me influence you. So let me close in prayer and Jake's going to come up and lead us in one final song and he picked such a great song to end with. It's an Easter song. I think that, that's what our day's like. It's, it's a new beginning. It's, it's like a resurrection Sunday. So Father, I thank you for today. God, I thank you for your goodness and your grace and your mercy. 
God, we thank you that you've given us your word, that we can read your word, that your word motivates us. It encourages us. It delivers us. It strengthens us. Lord, I thank you for Peter's words that we have every single thing that we need. That's so encouraging. God, forgive us when we think that we lack. Remind us that we have everything we need because of Jesus Christ in our life. Lord, I pray for every, each person in this room, each person that's listening to me, and the families that we represent, and maybe our extended Lake Effect family is not here today, that you would encourage us, that you'd forgive us for thinking we don't have enough. And Lord, help us to be grateful for what you've given to us. God, I pray that each person here would be motivated to really read your word today, in this week, in this year. Lord, help us to overcome any obstacles that might prevent us from being influenced by your word. God, I thank you for the year of transformation that we had last year and what you're doing this year. God, I do pray that we would be a church that would be telling your story, that we would be singing your story to the nations, that we would be singing it to our families and to this neighborhood that you put us in and to this wonderful city of Grand Rapids in West Michigan, Lord, that we would be singing your story. God, help us to be faithful servants this year. Help us, Lord, to follow you like you meant it when you asked in the first century that we would be fully devoted to Jesus Christ and his message for the world. Lord, help us to center our lives around you this year. Lord, we love you so much. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.